Good evening. It's 13 o'clock. This is Radio Clerkenwell 666 FM. Hello. This is Stephen from The Real Tuesday World. I've got some more Clerkenwell stories for you, but I'm also going to talk about sex and magic. And markets. You see, the other day, I was standing at the bus stop on Clerkenwell Road at the top of Leather Lane Market. I was waiting for number 55 to take me to Bethnal Green, where my friend Marcella Papini, the Papini sisters, lives. That's Marcella going, mm-hmm, on this tune. We've done lots of tunes together over the years, and lots of other things. She really is a wonderful person. Magic Marcella, I call her. Leather Lane Market is also rather wonderful. There are more than a hundred markets like this in London. They're not the big, flashy markets like Camden or Portobello, those famous tourist markets. These are street markets, ordinary markets for ordinary people, whatever they are. But Leatherland Market is still quite ordinary. I have noticed there's a few people with beards selling something called street food recently. But prior to that, you could buy stuff like out-of-date batteries, fruit and veg, underwear for a pound. In fact, I paid a pound for a powder blue posing pouch, which I gave to my friend, the writer Glenn Duncan, for his birthday when he was living with me in Clerkenwell. I don't know if you know what a posing pouch is. It's kind of like a thong, but without the back bit. He called it a mouse's hammock. He never used it, the purpose for which it was intended and it ended up getting hung up in the kitchen and filled with walnuts at Christmas not the most sexy image I think you'll agree I mention sex now because as I was standing there at the top of Leather Lane at the bus stop I read an article in the paper which said that men think about sex between 18 and 400 times a day. That works out about once every two minutes. Now, there was a guy at the bus stop with me and we'd been waiting for the bus for at least eight minutes. So I thought maybe he's thought about sex four times whilst we were there. Then I started to think about sex. But I wasn't thinking about sex, I was thinking about the word sex. And I was thinking, it's a very short word for a very big thing. Apparently, the longest word in English takes about three hours to pronounce. It's some sort of technical term. But sex is a very short word, isn't it? And I suddenly started to think, maybe it's not a word, it's an acronym. S-E-X. S could stand for sensual, E for erotic, X for X-rated, or S for saucy, E for enthusiastic, and X for... Oh, I'd run out of X words already. I mean, you can't really say ecstatic, because that begins with E. So I suddenly thought, xylophone. And I thought, yeah, you know, if sex was a musical instrument, I think I'd be a xylophone. Well, that got me thinking. So I put a question out to friends, which said, if sex is a musical instrument, what would you play? some very surprising results. 
If you can just restrain yourself for a few more minutes, I'll tell you what they were. But meanwhile, at the bus stop, the bus still hadn't come, as it were. But I didn't mind, because the top of Leather Lane is a great place to wait. Because right next to the bus stop is the International Magic Shop. I love this shop. It's very small, but it's full of magic devices and tricks. The people who run it are magic too. Or at least, they're members of the magic circle. And they conduct magic lessons in a small room upstairs. In days when I had very little money, I would go to the eat-all-you-can vegetarian Thai restaurant on Leather Lane and then pop into the International Magic Shop for a bit of free entertainment. One of the men, nearly always men, behind the counter, would do some sort of trick on you. It was great. But on this particular occasion, the usual shopkeepers weren't there. There was a man I'd never seen before. He reminded me somewhat of the shopkeeper in a children's animation called Mr. Ben. I don't think you've ever seen it. Anyway, I had a very interesting but strange conversation with him. He didn't do a trick on me, as far as I was aware. But he had a rather hypnotic gaze and he talked in rather a hypnotic way. I left the shop feeling quite peculiar. And just in time, because the bus arrived. And me and the man who'd been waiting at the bus stop, possibly thinking about sex, mounted. I climbed to the upper deck, where I sat down behind a man with a bald head. As the bus began to move, another strange thing happened. I seemed to fall into a trance or a dream. And in this dream, the bus itself became older and older. It began to change. It didn't look like a modern bus at all. It looked like a 1960s bus and then a 1950s bus. The colours changed, the seats got more uncomfortable. There was a smell of cigarette smoke in the air. But it didn't stop there. It went further and further back in time. Further and further back. In fact, suddenly, there was no roof on the bus, just the London sky above us. And I noticed, looking down into the city, the people dressed as they were at the beginning of the 20th century. The man sitting in front of me was also wearing old-fashioned clothes. But when he turned round, I noticed that he seemed to have grown a pointed beard. And I sort of came to with a start because I recognised his face. This wasn't an Englishman or a Londoner. It was a Russian. It was a very famous Russian. It was Vladimir Lenin. Yes, that Lenin. The next bus stop was right next to Clerkenwell Green, and Vladimir Lenin got off. I recalled as he did so that in fact Lenin had been in London at the beginning of the 20th century. And strangely, he partly plotted the Russian revolution here. With Trotsky 
various other Russians, and he wrote his famous radical newspaper, Iskra, the spark here in 1902. He found the city rather bourgeois, of course, but he did love to travel by bus. He didn't, however, like the food, which is understandable. Oxtails, skate fried in fat, cakes, and other mysteries of English fare gave him stomachache, apparently. But he did enjoy a drink in various Clerkenwell pubs. And he met Joseph Stalin here for the first time in the Crown and Anchor. We've played a gig there. Clockamore Green's very interesting, although it hasn't been green for hundreds of years. But it's always been a centre for radicalism and protest. Last couple of years, they've erected a statue to the wonderful Emmeline Pankhurst, the suffragette. And on one side of the square is the Karl Marx Memorial Library. Often, protests and marches set off in Clockamore Green, heading towards Westminster. But I wasn't heading towards Westminster. I was heading east on my bus slash time machine. I was leaving Lenin behind, but I couldn't help but be reminded of another mysterious personage of Clerkenwell, Arthur Macken. He was a writer at the turn of the century, rather forgotten these days, but he wandered around Clerkenwell and he wrote several stories set here. One, the strange occurrence of Clerkenwell was said to have terrified and possibly inspired a certain Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame. And he wrote about signs and omens and messages that he found on his wanderings and strange things that he experienced in Rosebury Avenue. Apparently when he was there, he felt once that he was walking on air and that there were great gusts of incense blowing around him. This idea of a floating man couldn't help but put me in mind of yet another famous Clerkenwell resident, Charles Green, one of London's earliest celebrated aeronauts. He was born in Clerkenwell in 1785. He flew in a balloon more than 500 times, set lots of new records and invented several ingenious balloon-related devices. But in some ways, he was a tragic figure He's the king of the air, just floating up there in suspension. Crowd stop and stare, he hangs unaware of their attention. He's gravity free, though no one can see how he hovers. He's the lord of the sky. Birds passing by without bother Is he really held still or just falling ever so slowly? An angel of God, is he magical, mystic or holy? He's mastered the art of staying apart from the masses Floating above, suspended in love, till he crashes. Charles Green had a friend called Robert Cocking, who was not so successful. Robert jumped out of Charles's greatest balloon, the NASA, at 5,000 feet to demonstrate a parachute he'd invented. Unfortunately, it didn't work, and he hit the ground with a splat and died. 
If you'd like to know more about green and cocking, check out my other Radio 666 FM broadcast, The Vauxhall Aeronaut. Now, I know that I'm drifting around like an untethered hot air balloon, but let's go back to Arthur Macken. He was a member of the Golden Dawn, that famous magical secret society, of which Alistair Crowley was also a member. Arthur lived off Grayson Road. He made a living as a journalist. One of the stories he wrote was about a very mysterious thing called the Clerkenwell Poltergeist. He also wrote Secret Glory, a novel about the Holy Grail and the great god Pan, which caused a terrible stir and impressed Oscar Wilde with his lurid tales of pagan sex. Oops, it's happened again. I thought about sex. It's obviously time to get back on the bus. So, there I was, drifting east in a dream or a trance-like state. And we passed the area known as Barbican. Now, Barbican is a modern development, but it sits on some very old streets. And one of them was Grub Street. And of course, that always reminds me of Henry Welby. Henry Welby was often called the Hermit of Grub Street but I call him the Clerkenwell Wizard. You see, he'd been a very upstanding, conventional, successful citizen, involved in all sorts of social affairs. He was very wealthy. Originally, he came from outside London, from Lincolnshire. But something seems to have happened. Nobody's quite sure what. It's said that his brother tried to murder him for some reason. And that seemed to have had a huge transformatory effect on Henry. After that, he retreated from normal life into three rooms on Grub Street. There, he remained unseen, it is said, by humans for over 45 years. He was only attended by an old lady called Elizabeth, and even she rarely saw him, because he would retire to one of the rooms whenever she was there to cook and clean for him. And even when she did catch a glimpse of him, he'd grown his hair and beard so she could barely see his face. What was he doing? He was reading huge quantities of books and writing things. Now perhaps he was just mad, perhaps. But it's interesting, that phrase, isn't it? He hadn't been seen by any humans for over 40 years. Perhaps he had been seen, or was seeing, other things. Perhaps, in fact, he was casting spells and attempting, as other people have, to keep Clerkenwell and that part of London safe and secure from other things. Who knows? Anyway, the bus had reached the edge of what we call Clerkenwell, and I was heading east even further to see Marcella Papini. I seemed to have emerged or awoken from my dream or that strange trance that the man in the international magic shop had put me into. And it's probably time for me now to leave you. But I did promise you something earlier, which was my friend's responses to the question that I'd formed when waiting at the bus stop. If sex was a musical instrument, 
What would you play? A gong or an accordion, said Stephen Bembo. Though not both at the same time, obviously. The kazoo, said Erica Rogers. I can relate to that. Gemma Valentine opted for the bongos. Things that you bang, drums, gongs, etc., as you can imagine, appeared quite often, as did things that you had to squeeze or poke. And of course, horns. David Johansson went for the clarinet. The bass saxophone, said Victoria Rush Lawrence, with quite some detail. She said that you've got to be gentle with the mouthpiece and not use your teeth. And there are lots of buttons and valves that you need both hands to play. Nathan Bitgood, on the other hand, went for the simplicity of the foghorn. Loud, consistent and functional. A little bit scary, though, I think. Ocarinas, those very nice South American instruments, made a welcome appearance. As did classical instruments, of course. Grand pianos, flutes, cellos, violins. The harp, said Mark Sebastian Jordan. He wanted to wrap himself around it, fingering those tender strings to make it sing timeless songs. Jeff Johnson, on the other hand, went for the trombone, and he went into quite some detail about the slide tube moving back and forth, and some other stuff that I'm actually not going to go into right here. Michael Ayrton opted for the theremin. Obviously not into contact then. Or perhaps that's the noise he makes. Nathan Sprinkle went for the spoons. I can definitely relate to that. Mike Shup, the bagpipe. A bit loud for me. Jason Tellier went for something called the Udu. He showed me a picture of it and it made me cross my legs. There were quite a few instruments I'd not heard of. But some like the hurdy-gurdy I hadn't heard of for a while and I thought, yeah, absolutely. The saxophone kept coming back in and I've got to say it really depends on who's playing it. I mean, you're not talking about Kenny G playing it, are you? Sigrun Harper, Joseph Stotia, I think I pronounced that right, went for the triangle. I like that. Perhaps we should all get together. We could form a band. We could call ourselves the Clarkamel Orgiestra. Speaking of bands, I will be back soon with more news of that band, The Real Tuesday World. You've been listening to some of the new tunes from The Real Tuesday World, but what have we been up to all this time? And what's next? All will be revealed. And next time, I'm going to talk more about time machines. Because, of course, there is a time machine in London, in Brompton Cemetery. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. That is, after all, why we do this stuff. Please leave a comment below what you think about all these strange tales of sex, magic, clarkamel. And let us know what you'd like to hear about. See you soon. Mm-hmm.